Let me go ahead and direct your eyes to our teaching today, and that's going to be back in the book of Samuel, and the specific area that I want to be in, I just uh, went past it, but I'll, I'll get back there, um, will be in uh, chapter 17, that's where you're going to hold your spot, chapter 17, and then your eyes are going to mark verse 14, because that's where we're going to pick it up with right now, verse 14. <laughs> I know you're trying to tell me something. I'm wrong. I'm right. What did I say? There is two. John's good with numbers. So there are two books in Samuel. It's the second book. Because it was that long ago that we did it. How's the mic? Is it working okay for you guys over here? Is it nice, clear, crisp? Okay. Okay. We did do some things, and I just I like to actually keep you posted because I know that you take some observation of it. But um, we set up a line that is specifically dedicated to the vocals, not all the music, just the vocals. That's the two behind me on horizontal and one on each side in the vertical. All that's doing is directing the lead vocals that you're hearing, I believe, very clearly. So if you see some things that are being played around with, it's me. It's a little playground that I have here. And it's intended to make sure that we have precision, both in worship and also the teaching. I felt it was just a great sound. Thanks, Chris for dialing that in. And the musicians that spent hours, both yesterday and today, uh, putting your heart into that. Lord, we ask for your blessings that you would just cover us in this teaching, and we know that you do. We know that it has application, so we're asking right now as we pick up our study in the life of David, who had a diligence that is acknowledged as admirable, honorable, one who was blessed in spite of, at times, just a very hard life because of the challenges to live a godly life and the challenge to make decisions that render godly blessings. But we see that he never gave up on you, though many gave up on him. Lord, we have today those who have suffered in the giving up on them, but you never have, and therefore we can rejoice. We can be confident that in the times of consequences, you are faithful to perfect that which concerns us. You haven't abandoned us. You have not left us to our own. And so thank you for calling us your own. We realize that we are vulnerable in our human condition to at times forsake the divine expectation. But you are faithful. We applaud you. We can mark it in the journals that we have penned in the teachings that we've heard, the blessings that we've experienced, and yet the hardships that are part of the disciple's life. So now, bless your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. The teaching today, simply picking this up, is the futility of vanity. And I picked that up because the focus primarily right now is returning to Absalom. And Absalom is one of the sons of David. David had a large family. Primarily we hear of his sons, though he had daughters. And we hear of the distinction of their sons because he was married, so therefore the plurality is, is right. With the different women that he married, he had different sons. They behaved differently. The ones that seem to be emphasized, though, the most are those that were the most foolish, not those who were the most godly. There would be one left yet to be coming on the scene, and that's Solomon. God's heart was for him, and he was the product ultimately of a decision that David had 
made to outstep his boundaries as a king and as a spiritual leader. We know that story. What we do see, though, in comparison is God's grace and mercy, that from a crisis in David's life, he would be given a fruitful measure of grace to, one, not be judged in the capacity that he could have been as a king, to have his sin forgiven, and to have a son who would be established as a king of peace, a picture. But the other sons, and in particular this one, they were not good. They were rebellious. They didn't like one another. They were interested in the position that they believed they were entitled to. One, an elder son that theoretically would have taken on the throne. But right now what we see is Absalom. And everything that he has done is catching up to him. And there's a truth in that that's important to recognize. In Hosea, you can mark it simply with your notes or mentally. In verse 7, it says this, They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no bud. It shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. It's poetic language, but it's historical too. In advance of that verse, which the emphasis was simply sowing to the wind and basically reaping the whirlwind, this is the legacy of Absalom and Annie that defy God and principles that he's laid out for righteousness. But in advance of this, it says basically in verse 4, they set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. And from their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against you. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this. A workman made it, and it is not God. We have the industry of nations, and they make things, but it doesn't necessarily make, mean that what they make, as admirable as it may be, is of God. It does not mean that simply because a man might be able to be said by others self-made or made by industry, made by vision, made by a vote of the people, that they are of God. We know that God makes allowances. In fact, as we come back to that area in our teaching, we'll see that there was an allowance made by God, that ultimately Absalom, who conspired against his father, would be conspired by those sent by his father. It's pretty clever, actually. The reason that it happened is because God was with David and he was not with those who invoked by princely authority and having a fan base that admired him, God would say, I'm not substantiating that. It had traction for a season, but it stops. You know, one of the things that we continually see in the pattern of history is that nations will rise up and kings will rise up. Kings will be put down and nations will fall into subordination to one stronger. Those tensions will not go away. They're purposed actually to create a dilemma in which man, as they study themselves and choose to look historically at the record, would say, Something's not working out. There has to be more than the pursuit, even of power, even if it has a place which is to be for the people, to benefit. 
because God knows ultimately that the only power that benefits anyone is the power of God through the Spirit of God residing in the person that has a relationship with the Lord. That's what these lessons are all about. How much of the Lord that somebody has as opposed to simply an awareness of the Lord, but actually no empowerment, just a pursuit of vanity, futility and vanity. Worthlessness would be a description of futility. And vanity, we know, is basically an expression of pride, which hides in all men and women. God hates pride because it causes people to do things that are exaltating of not their spirituality, but of their carnality. Pride in what the Lord has done in his sacrifice is good. But pride, in terms of what man has done, is bad. If it moves away from crediting the author of our faith and the one who blesses us because he's gracious, that is an expression of pride. And it ultimately leads to a demise if it is not corrected. This is where we pick this up. And so let's indulge right now in that. In verse 14, it says this. So Absalom, this is verse, this is chapter 17, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 17, picking it up in verse 14. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. It's almost right now just with that sentence alone, the written conclusion. Disaster awaits Absalom. It awaits Absalom because he is a son who has maliciously pursued the position of his father, who with the muscle of pride of arrogance, admiration from his contemporaries, as well as a subduing of those who would be the generation above him, ignoring them. David did not lack people that loved him. But there is not necessarily the sufficiency of love to overwhelm corruption when it has the force of evil behind it. Love will, as we've said in phraseology, win if it is God's love. And it's not God's acceptation of simply any kind of love. It's his overwhelming love for those who have overwhelmingly surrendered to him. Nothing held back. Nothing that would be something that violates the integrity of a covenant relationship with God. But Absalom, to the degree that he has persisted in taking vengeance upon his own family and taking a position that was not ordained by God, we hear God's heart, I'm taking you out. It's interesting because Ahithophel is David's father-in-law. He is a father-in-law based on, and I say that generationally, there is the fact of the matter that he became a counselor and probably very likely was one that was very much esteemed before David and with David. David relied on him. Meaning that in terms of conspiring against David, he actually had things right in terms of how to take David out. But remember, Hushai was the one that said, I'll go as you're commending me to go, David, and I'll be your ears, and I'll be your voice piece behind the lines, and I'll be the counsel to Absalom 
that will confuse him. And that's what, that's what, as you remember, his whole purpose was, was to create a controversy within council in which he would block Ahithophel from influencing Absalom on what to do. And God says, yeah, I'm using Hushai against Ahithophel's counsel for evil, which actually would have prevailed, but I'm doing this to bring disaster on Absalom. Disaster. What he has sought to do in the flesh, I will quench by my power, and I will subvert even counselors against him. What was the result of that? Here was the result of that. Because Ahithophel is not a good man, he's a traitor to David. Because of his betrayal of David, he gave Absalom, if you would, a courage that may have been suppressed. That's why it's important that older generational people speak up when there's foolishness to the younger generation. I see what's motivating you, been there, done that, but where you're going is futile, it's vanity. And there will be disaster brought upon you. And it's not of a God judging you for the sake of simply putting you out. It's correcting you that you cannot continue in taking others with you. It doesn't have application to all consequences and accidents. We all have, I believe, because of the Spirit, an awareness of when something happened to us that changed us. I am one that's able to say that my temperament towards my father changed the outcome of my life early at 16. I believe that I'm right in my assessment. Face to face, because he would not let me do something that I wanted to do which was foolish as I look at it now. That was to take a bike ride from Grant's Pass to the Oregon coast in the dark. Call you all of that junk. I had a brother that did it with an older friend. They successfully navigated it, but my father, I think, made a decision. That's not going to happen again. Until Richard came along, I thought, this is a brilliant idea. Jim did it. I'm going to do it. But Jim was, he was Jim. He was the, he was the, the dentist. He had brains for it. I had no brains for it, nor brawn for it. I think my father read that in me. But I was incensed against him. Had a very difficult argument with him on our property. And thereafter, right after that, decided to finish up chores that had been asked of me, which was to wash a window. So you heard the story before. What I'm saying is that I believe not only did I so to the wind, I reaped the whirlwind. For in one faulty step on a ledge, my foot leaving that window sill provoked the weight of my body to take the hand that was on the pane, a very thin pane of glass. Those 1940 hums were not very good with glass. And it changed my life because I shredded my arm, almost bled to death, and I certainly would not be playing piano. I put that to you because it's important to come to terms when there's a conviction that what we're doing is not of God. And God has the ability, and he did. He saved me. I, if there's one that could have bled out, it should have been me. He saved me. Absalom would not be used in this example because he would not repent. What we know that right now he has done has filled up the measure of God's wrath to where disaster has been pronounced for him. In the same context, he is a picture of one who should have been godly, having been born into a godly home, having a father like David, and turning from the ways of God to pursue carnal satisfaction. He had already violated 
the concubines and wives of his father. He had done it as a public spectacle. We saw that the Lord made that evident in what we would call the foreknowledge of God disclosed through Nathan the prophet that this is what would happen, and it did. If God has given a foreknowledge to men through the word, wouldn't it be wise then that men read the word and say, huh, if this is what God says is going to happen, I better take it seriously and change the direction of my life. This is what is essentially the repentant message of the gospel. God's been so good, he's got a plan of goodness for everybody's life, but there is a pending judgment. It's being suspended right now in grace, but there's a turning to God that must take place. And if not, then like Absalom, disaster is appointed for all men, even who say they're linked with the king, like the king, bloodline, all of that. Absalom is marked for disaster. And this voicing is important because there's an end time in which no change will be left to make change. The disposition is gone, the humility, vanity is taken over, futility has found its way in the mechanism of those who support what it is we do that's rebellious, contending against God. It's a hard life for those that choose the hard way. Disaster has been appointed for Absalom. Let's pick it up and slide over right now. And I want to pick it up right here. Verse 23. I'll sum it up to this verse. David has now heard word through Hushai that Absalom is intending to make this surge in pursuit of David. Now, it's a, different, it's a different surge than what Ahithophel was proposing. But Hushai is saying, he's hard on your heels. So don't remain in the plains. Move. Get out of the way. And this is also a picture, too. God knows precisely the enemy that's pursuing us. And we do stand on God's promises, and we stay in place with regard to being courageous but in the strategies, the Lord is also able to tell us, turn in this direction, turn in that direction. Don't get comfortable where you're at right now. It's quiet. Don't get comfortable where you're at. And so David right now is taking that word. What we see as a result, again, of Hushai's influence and David's response. Remember, the cool thing about David is that under heat, he seeks God. And he listens to the Lord, to godly counsel. That's honestly what we see meritus of David right now. He's not simply doing it on his own, but he's leading. And he's leading those who know that their life is better kept in David's hands than in Absalom's hands. We still don't know how many left. We were given a presentation of the whom that left. But this would not have been an entire city that simply remained back. David would have been taking a lot of people with him that wanted to follow him, that sorrowed with him, and that also believed that if David they are with, whom God is with, they would return to their city. But Ahithophel right now, who is a conspirator and the one who gave um, Absalom Again, even an additional drink of pride. It says, Ahithophel in verse 23 saw that his advice was not followed. He saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city, and then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. Cursed is one who hangs from a tree. The scriptures tell us that that was a picture foretelling ultimately what Jesus would be. The tree that he would hang on was not a live tree. 
it would be the product of a living tree, but it would have been cut down to serve as an implement of torture and death for God who created that tree. The scriptures choose to tell us in advance of what ultimately God would do, be a curse on a tree. Ahithophel hangs himself. As a result, God is saying, this man is cursed. But he's not cursed on behalf of others. He basically has cursed himself because he betrayed another, a great king, David. He didn't have to. At a time in which he needed to forgive and to forget, he didn't. He carried the grudge that was his in his heart when the transgression of David was evident through ultimately Bathsheba. God forgave him. Ahithophel didn't. Unforgiveness is what drives people to insane behavior. Mercy is always what is intended from the perspective of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Whenever you got to make a judgment, you've got to be able to say, as long as in my judgment there is not temperament, then it can be adjudicated in righteousness, and it can be adjudicated with grace, and it can have mercy. It does not mean that it won't have consequences. It just means that the delivery of it is intended ultimately for the good of the person that must be the recipient of it. We've all gone through it. We've gone through corrections in which it has been without mercy. We have also gone through corrections in which it is very merciful. So Hithophel right now is literally suffering from the consequence of his own judgment upon David. And he can't take it anymore because what he's found is that he's failed. Where he didn't have to fail, he could have discovered the faithfulness of God just like David did. He failed. And so what he chose to do was to terminate his life. It was allowed. This was a suicide by hanging. We have people that are terminating their lives because they think that they've gone too far from God when in fact the problem is they've not gone one step towards God. And sometimes they say, even not concerned about God, no one's concerned about me. Who's saying that? The enemy. The devil is a liar. And he applauds every life that's taken without a commitment to the Lord. Every distraction, every act of rebellion, disobedience, everything that is corrupt, Satan applauds because he's the author of everything that seats itself in a lie and is expressed against the human condition and throws its fist up against God. Ahithophel dies. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. There will be a generation that will be cursed because rather than looking to the one who hung on the tree at Calvary, they got distracted by everything else. Remember when you look at Jesus on the cross, cursed, he took the curse and was cursed on our behalf, meaning that if people are not going to acknowledge him as the one who satisfied the debt of the curse, then it means they will then be placed there themselves, only without the provision of grace and mercy. They cannot be forgiven. God has forgiven them presently, but if they don't receive it in faith, it voids it. It's as if it was right there and declined in the same breath. If it's not received, though it is given, it is not appropriated. And so Absalom right now is discovering that even those who were very high in his chain of command are not able to thwart ultimately condemnation. It doesn't say that he held a morning session for him. It doesn't give us any indication except that this man says it's all over for me. There's nothing worth living for. I've betrayed David. He might have thought that and Absalom has no use for me. I'm a mockery. I failed. God doesn't want any person to feel they've failed to the degree that they 
do not seek him in faithfulness. So where does this go? Ahithophel right now is out of the way. We know that ultimately right now, according to this word we left in verse 14, disaster is now going to be imposed upon Absalom. But how does it happen? Well, he just continues in his vain pursuit. It says, and I'm going to pick this up right now, that there's going to be a provision that will be made. It happened when David, in verse 27, had come to Mahanaim, that Shobi, the son of Nahesh from Rabbah, of the people of Amnon, Macher, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzali, the Gileadite, from Rojalim, they brought, notice this verse 28, beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour and parched grain and beans and lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. That's where David is presently and where he says, could, have I made the right decision in leading? It's confirmed you have. Because those outside your camp, but those who are aware of the integrity with which you have followed the Lord are going to make provision with their riches and with their industry. We see that within the church. There's provision made for needs that must be met. A person can't do anything about where they're at, but all of a sudden that truckload of stuff comes. Intelligence prevails over foolishness. And what would, been, would have been impossible for David to muster is coming to him. It's being managed by others. And so God is showing a contrast right now in terms of can the godly trust the Lord in a time where godlessness is in pursuit of you and in which it is your wilderness moment when you had a citadel to live at and a place of, if you would, comfort and predictability? Can you make it by just trusting yourself to the Lord? Is it possible that God can sustain you when there's seemingly nothing available for you. That's what God's saying right now. Ahithophel could have been sustained by the very same God who made provision through these men who were not a part of this exodus for David. All he had to do is say, David, I was wrong. I am sorry. I betrayed you. I've made a mess of your life and of my life and leave the results to the Lord through David as to what would happen. He didn't. Went to his grave, condemned by his own hand, by his own faithlessness. That's where we leave that. David right now is being revived. There's provision that's being given to him, the Lord rewarding him. Stay on the mark, David. We know what you're hearing. We know that you're aware that your son is empowered and he's powering up to take you on and actually to kill you it's not just about arresting you it's to make an example of you hold out david and so absalom in chapter 18 is revealed in terms of the demise that we know is foretold david numbered the people who were with them and set captains of thousands and captives and captains of hundreds over them do you understand right now that David has a lot of people with him? Do you understand that you as church members have a lot of people with you? You think, no, it's just, it's just us, this small little group of, you know, we're not even trained to do anything. Yes, you have. You've been trained to sing and to praise the Lord, to pray, to study. This is a perfect picture of saying, you do not know how much of a force is with you. You only see just a portion of where you're at. 
and this is just a cool word, we never really get a handle on really who's with David. We never really get a handle on who's with the Lord through the church. We always see the church as being small and picked on, irrelevant, insignificant, because culture tells us that. And God says, nap, I got the chuck wagon for them. I'm supplying their needs. They are not only relevant, they're strong. And they're a force to contend with as I'm leading them. David sent out one third of the people under the hand of Joab, one third under the hand of Abishai. These are brothers. They are related to David as nephews because they are the sons of one of his sisters. They are probably a bit younger than David, which would happen in a large family. But that's the linkage just to put you into remembrance right now. And so a third is with Joab, a third is with Abishai, the son of Zariah, that's the sister. And then it says a third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. That's the word of the Lord to you as well. In whatever battle you're facing and in whatever assignment has been apportioned to you, with whomever, I'm going to go out with you. I'm with you. We're never alone. And whatever footstep is required of us to make in leading, and by the way, even if you don't think you're a leader, you're leading. People are watching. But the people answered, notice this. You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if um, half of us die, will they care about us? But you were worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. And the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. This, in essence, is the sentiment of the people saying how much they value the Lord. And they're actually saying that in this, it is so evident in how you've led us and how you've taught us. We have no doubt that we can take up the slack. We can take that hill. In other words, that's really all God needs to say. I'm not going unless you're going with me. He says, okay, I'm with you. And it's also like saying, Lord, just say the word and we're on the march. We believe that just your word alone is sufficient for us to do exactly what you've told us to do. And they'll say, great, I'll hang back. It's my word, go. Some say, I need you. I need your presence with me. Great, I'll be there. Others say, no, Lord, just say the word. I'll go. Go. Either or, how your faith is strengthened by how the Lord accepts your need. And so as this continues to unfold, King the King, in verse 5 is where I'm going to pick it up, commanded Job, Abishai, and Itael, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. What does this mean? <laughs> it's, it's ironic that this son would hear this word from his father when all his intentions are is to take him out. But here's what you have to hear is the heart of the Lord. It's the Lord's kindness that leads men to repentance. God is basically saying through David's words, this hurts a lot. This guy deserves probably everything that I see in the eyes of those who are executing military strategies right now. Because I know that that's what they're wired for, I'm telling them to submit to my heart. Don't take him out. Deal gently with him. Be different towards him. Why? Because that's how God proves himself again. To the infinitely ill-deserving, God's favor is granted, meaning grace. No one deserves it, but everyone gets it. And Absalom did not deserve it, but David's heart is, I want him to have grace. I want another opportunity to see him face to face. I want my kindness to be expressed in how you treat him. Others would say he's a traitor. He's on the battlefield. That isn't the rules of engagement. We take out the enemy. We do not let them survive. That would be a military mindset for those being sent out. But it's in complete opposition to David's heart that's just been expressed. 
And so therefore, we know that there's an irony with the expectation that God has for us to be instruments of grace through kindness and dispositions that we know people don't deserve, but we don't know the change ultimately that it could mean to them in a decision that they may make in spite of what they've done or may continue to do. That's the amazing thing about God. He's gracious. Think of the most heinous criminal behind bars. God would say, I was gracious to them to the day that they were incarcerated. I am gracious to them even now in their incarceration. I love them. It's their choice. They could have made it before the bars, but they made it now into the bars. They still have a choice to make. And many have been saved in those places of correction because they're at the end of folly. They can't do much more. And so David makes this appeal to those who are sent out, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom, or to deal gently for those that don't deserve it, for the sake of what the Lord wants to accomplish. And therefore, very often the Lord says, you're a temperamental person. I want you to be a gentle person. I want you actually to be tempered, refined. And so it says, as we continue on, the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim, and the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. So David's men are prevailing. And the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. That's a tricky statement, but it indicates it was so dense that people were getting lost in them and very likely dying of perhaps the animals that may have been there or confusing themselves one to another and striking against one another. Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under and it says this, the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left, notice this, hanging between heaven and earth and the mule which was under him went on. He's suspended between heaven and earth. It's another picture of what essentially God requires of us to look to the cross, which literally suspends humanity between heaven and earth. It's the decision to take up our cross to follow the Lord and to literally take ourselves to the place in which who we are in our carnal humanity without spirit have a resignation and a decision that we either will make or won't make. Absalom, again, is suspended by the very thing that people took note of. He was handsome. He had hair that when it was shored like a sheep, weighed pounds at the market. His hair was the picture of vanity, and it snagged him. And there he was, vulnerable. He no longer was on the mule that was his to show, one, authority, and two, to get him out of a predicament. He's just left, suspended between earth and heaven. What decision can he make now? It's going to be difficult to sound retreat. It's going to be difficult to motivate people to go on. He's all by himself, and he knows right now that where he's at, he's now vulnerable to the judgment of those who are noted as his enemies, those who have served his father. This is what he comes to terms with. Now a certain man saw it, told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? And why did you not strike him there 
to the ground, I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. The executioner awaits. The executioner is disappointed that one who served under him did not take that task on. But the man said to Job, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you, and Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Job said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel. For Joab held back the people and they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. And then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself. And he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day it is called Absalom's monument. We conclude there by seeing again a furtherance of the picture. There were those who took the king's words seriously. We heard what his heart was towards Absalom. Do you think that that would be right to be aware of the heart of the king and to defy him out of anger, categorizing it as rebellion and an enemy of David and he deserves this? That's, that's the tension that we have in our life. Because you and I know that when there is wickedness that is revealed and when there's lives lost by the hands of the unrighteous, we say, oh boy, if I were there on that day, I would have rendered a judgment to make sure that didn't happen again, right? That's our nature. What if that was God's nature though? What if God said, I can't wait for the decision that I'm going to make to render that person dead. And so the tension here is realizing that God is voicing through David what he's willing to do, even to the most unlikely as Absalom. We're not so like that at times, though. You think of what it would take to cause you to have a different mindset of God who loves people to the uttermost, and especially those who have committed the most heinous of crimes against him, even against their fellow human beings. That's the picture that we see. God spoke, and the speaking was given to us as a determination that disaster was awaiting Absalom. Absalom, deep in his heart, probably would have known that what he was doing was deserving of the consequence in conflict as a pseudo king leading David's people against him. And that's what it was. He was leading literally the people of God against David who had God's heart. And God allows us to see his heart when David voices in grief, be gentle with him. I want another opportunity. And it means that in this illustration, God will say, your excuses are removed. I gave you every opportunity until a time in which you would not respond. Absalom hanging from that tree could have voiced repentance to jump. I'm not saying it would have worked, but we have no evidence he did anything else but just hang there between heaven and earth. And some people are hanging there between heaven and earth, choosing rather to be cursed by God because they did not receive the curse upon God, Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of their sin and to be given the bounty of promises and to live with him for eternity. The gospel message is that God is good to a world that has rejected him and will remain good and faithful until there is no more time but simply 
I suspended one greater than you between heaven and earth, and you refused him. Now you were the cursed, suspended between heaven and earth, and therefore you will choose to have a domain that was purposed for Satan and his angels. Lord, we ask for your blessings right now as we consider this word to us, as we consider even how marvelously we are impressed with you, Lord, and what you've done for us. Lord, we know that these are historical accounts. It's factual, but there are pictures in this that are intended to stir us to a better understanding of what grace means, of what mercy um, proves itself when it triumphs over judgment. Somebody deserves what it is that you want to give them, but you say mercy triumphs over that judgment. And so, Lord, even help us today. Help us today, Lord, to even account for the times in which rebelliousness led to consequence. But there you were. You were on the scene even when consequence was effectually earned. We paid for it. We, we signed up for it. And you were gracious to love us through it. Give us a second start. Put our footsteps soundly on the rock. So we thank you for that, and we ask for your blessings, Lord. And as we contemplate right now our time of communion, we ask that we do this in remembrance of you, what it was you did, hanging between heaven and earth as the curse in which God's judgment was imposed upon you, Jesus, and removed from us. Thank you for that. A God who in such a way, did not spare himself of any suffering. Therefore, you have compassion for us. You know exactly what we're going through. You know the tear in our heart, the spears in our heart, Lord. Thank you for your understanding. And so committing this time and this closing song to the elements of communion that we can take personally, we give them to you as you have given them to us to take frequently. Thanking you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.